show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Ilyri. What are we serving today? Wine. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm actually not drinking wine. I'm drinking the actual blood of Christ. Are you? Mm-hmm. I'm actually not drinking wine, I must confess. <laughs> <laughs> I am. <Okay>. Um, <laughs> I'm drinking rum and ginger beer because I accidentally got drunk and uh, finished off the wine last night. <laughs> Right. The, the, the spirit yeah, the, moved you last night. It did, yeah. To drink so, to drink Jesus' blood. And so absolutely. now you're a, a different a spirit of a different kind. Exactly. The spirit is still there. It's just rum. Sure. But yeah. <laughs> not like I you think, not uh, like you to not be on theme, hun. <laughs> <laughs> or or to admit to doing Jesus. something drunkenly that you shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. someone needs Jesus today. And it's you. Yeah, I've sinned. Uh, I have sinned. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about communion wine and themes that come off that. Um, my my wine is not the blood of Jesus. I will I will own it now. I'll actually tell you what wine it is when I come to it, um, when I talk about it, if I remember. And if I don't, okay. ask me again at the end. So <laughs> communion wine, <laughs> sacramental wine, um, altar wine... All the same thing, different names. It is it is wine, first of all, we should know. It is obtained from grapes. And it's wine that's used specifically in celebration of the Eucharist, otherwise known as Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper or other similar names. And it's usually consumed with or after sacramental bread. Um, I don't think I've got this anywhere else in my notes, but before I forget... Um, I read a story about how, you know, the, the wafers you get that are sacramental bread in, uh, mm-hmm. in Eucharist, um, which is, uh, well, there was a company in Belgium that were making those and selling them. And then all of a sudden there was a steep decline in the demand for it. And they were like, well, what else can we do with these little sort of wafery discs? And so they created um, flying saucer sweets out of it, filled it with sherbet. Make flying sauces. You love flying they are sauces, my don't favorite you? Favorite sweet. Yeah, they're my favorite. God, you do. I what? I mean, you sent me a picture of you eating a massive bucket of those only about a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's as holy as she gets. I, I'm I'm keeping the little round wafer companies afloat with the amount of flying sauces I eat. <laughs> yeah, you do. You eat as many of those as the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> I'd hasten to say maybe so, more. <laughs> so a little bonus sacramental bread fact there. So in the um, Roman rite of the Catholic Church, communion is administered under the form of wine, either by the communicant drinking directly from a chalice or by intinction, as it's called. Intinction is where you dip the consecrated bread into the wine and then you place it in the mouth of the communicant. And as I'm looking at your face, I can already tell you're going to do that with a flying saucer. <laughs> yeah, I probably already have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> just I was by also accident. Thinking, um, <laughs> I was also thinking about how just how nice that word is to say, tinction. Intinction, yeah. It's Intinction. nice, isn't it? Next time you accidentally um, drop a flying saucer into your wine as you're drinking and eating, you can just say, it's intinction, babes. Yeah. Do I have to pray or something? <laughs> I mean, I like, oh, let's get to that. Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's the respectful thing to do in such a scenario. <laughs> um, so in the, in the early church, both the clergy and the laity, laity just means not clergy, um, received the consecrated wine by drinking from the chalice and after receiving some of the bread. Now, due to kind of few other factors, uh, mostly the difficulty of obtaining wine in northern European countries where the climate is not as suitable for viticulture, um, drinking from the chalice there became more restricted just to the celebrating priest. Um, while in some other places where it's even more restricted, they only get communion in the form of bread. Um, and this also meant it reduced the importance of choosing red wine as the colour of wine. So they might have had another colour of wine um, to deal with there if it was if it was more sparse. Uh, editions of the Roman Missal um, that were kind of um, around the end of the 20th century also kind of put forward that you could use a silver tube or a fistula as it's known um which would be a straw to drink uh drink the uh <laughs> the wine through now when did we when did we last hear about drinking alcohol through a silver tube i thought that's what you were laughing at were you just laughing at i just fistula? i was laughing at fistula yeah right. <laughs> I thought you were remembering the last time we um, had someone drinking alcohol through a straw, which is the um, Mesopotamian episode. We kicked off with that image. Oh, yes. Yeah. Anyway, it's not that. Um, <laughs> it's just it's just a, a straw to drink from the chalice, which um, is arguably a little bit more hygienic. Um, so in the Byzantine rites, that's the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, and some of the Eastern Catholic churches as well, the normal method is actually to use a spoon to give some of the consecrated bread and wine together. Um, so the bread is dropped into the chalice, then you sort of spoon it up and you give someone a spoon instead of drinking like a straight crouton. The yeah, kind of like having a wine soup with a consecrated bread crouton. Um, I'm, sure they, I'm sure they would love to know that that's what we think of it. Uh, the Anglican <laughs> Church, the wine is normally consumed with each communicant receiving a small sip of it as the chalice is held by another person. And then that's referred to as the common cup. So that's mostly what you get in this country is the cup being offered to someone else and they drink straight from the chalice because we like to chin it, not <laughs> sip off a spoon. <laughs> um, do you think the wine is made differently? Communion wine? Well, it's Jesus's blood, so obvs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it sort of is an ism. It isn't really, but there are certain conditions. So it has to be natural. Um, sacramental wine has to be made from the fruit of the grape, pure and incorrupt. It can include raisins as well, but it shouldn't be mixed with any other substances. So no retina, etc. Um, it's also important that the wine hasn't turned into vinegar or soured in any way. And it is altogether forbidden to use wine of doubtful authenticity or provenance. Um, so as I mentioned, sacramental wine doesn't have to be red. 
It can be white, it can be dry or sweet, it can even be fortified as long as the source of fortification is only grape-derived. So, you know, something kind of like a port, for example. And as long as the ABV stays between 5 and 18%. I looked at that and it was like, only up to 18%. I was like, that's a, I mean, that's a pretty strong wine, but I suppose if you're fortifying, it could potentially get, you know, up to 20 or something. So once it's approved by the bishop of the vineyard's diocese, it can be labelled as sacramental and sold. So that's the condition. It just has to be natural. It has to be approved by the local bishop. And they can say, yeah, that's fine. And then you have to, you can't do anything funny to it. But that, those are the only conditions. So it's not like, you know, super special. The difference, obviously, is that sacramental wine is just wine until it's blessed. So it's not like you can make wine straight from those, you know, the official grapes and consider it holy. It still has to be blessed. Otherwise, you can just drink it if you want to. Um, you can go and buy it direct from producers. So there's um, there's a few in America I saw and they use all sorts of grapes, Chablis, Muscatel, Burgundy, Port Wine. Um, there's one in Napa Valley, in fact, Mont La Salle, who's been making it since 1930. And they say that it's kind of what saved the business when California was going through prohibition because they were allowed to continue making sacramental wine, even though they weren't allowed, obviously, to sell it to the laity. So, saviours. <laughs> saviours <laughs> of wine. Cheers, <laughs> Yeah, cheers. Cheers, Jeeves. Um, the majority of liturgical churches, so Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, say that the wine should be pure, it should be alcoholic. But there are other Christian churches that disapprove of the consumption of alcohol and will substitute it for grape juice instead. Um, this broadly, there are kind of exceptions with individuals uh, throughout recorded history, but this broadly comes into fashion in the mid-19th century. So it's relatively recent, um, in, you know, idea that um, Christians don't want to drink alcohol. So some Protestant Christians uh moved from a position of allowing moderate use of alcohol, which was called moderationism, uh, into one of two areas, which we would broadly call teetotal, but actually there's, there's an important difference. So there's one called abstentionism, which is where they decide the wisest thing to do in the current circumstances is not to drink. And there's another one called prohibitionism, which is when they believe it's a sin, that it's God's law that you shouldn't drink alcohol and therefore they believe it should be, you know, the law. So it's slightly different. It's like one, they think it's a sin and it's the law. The other think it's just the right thing to do. But we tend to just lump them together. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the Protestant churches, particularly Methodists, uh, are abstentionist. And so they were early leaders in the temperance movement of the 19th century and then on into the 20th. Um, but I will sort of stop there in terms of the the legacy of prohibition because i think that's probably another episode in and of itself but i thought you might want to know kind of according to the bible what it says on the matter okay Mm -hmm. so it's it's much like any other culture really that we've we've already looked at through history it's quite mixed it says enjoying it can be a good and natural thing but drunkenness is not cool 
that tends to just be the only barrier any culture has. It's like, enjoy alcohol, but don't be a dick about it. Um, so, <laughs> positively, for example, wine is used as a symbol of abundance and of physical blessings. Negatively, it's personified as something that um, makes people into brawlers. And drinking a, a cup of strong wine to the dregs and getting drunk would be presented as a symbol of God's judgment and wrath. So the Bible speaks about wine in general terms as a bringer of joy, particularly in the context of nourishment and of feasting. So wine was very commonly drunk at meals and the Old Testament prescribed it for use in sacrificial rituals, in celebrations. Um, in the Gospel of John, it, he records the first miracle of Jesus as making copious amounts of wine at the wedding feast of Cana. And Jesus instituted the ritual of the Eucharist at the Last Supper during a Passover celebration. He says the fruit of the vine is a new covenant in his blood. Christians have differed on what the implications of that actually are. But um, we do know as well there are references in the Bible to alcohol being used for medicinal purposes. And it appears in that context in several passages as well as an oral anaesthetic, as a topical cleanser, as a soother and as a digestive aid. So more often than not in the Bible, it's mentioned in a pretty positive context. It's definitely, to put it another way, culturally normal at the time it was written. Uh, most of the Bible takes place in Palestine, which is ideal wine growing country. And also there was a long tradition of Jewish people making and drinking wine long before Christians, before the Roman Empire, um, around that region. Um, and actually, they um, they would have had it untainted as well. They wouldn't kind of put anything in it, not even water. Um, and they have stories that wine came from Noah. Because there's no mention of wine in the Bible before the Great Flood, um, before the Deluge. And so they kind of re reason that after the Flood, Noah and his sons were the ones to discover viticulture and there's a story of Noah getting drunk um, and that not being a good thing but having discovered it. All of which you might sort of remember again from the Mesopotamian episode because Noah is largely inspired by the story of Gilgamesh and in that we saw how important you know drinking was as part of the foundation of civilization as part of Gilgamesh's journey. So I suspect it's kind of come in via that route. Um, if you like, <laughs> through Gugamesh to Noah and the Bible. Um, different sorts of wines that we can get for um, for the communion wine. So in Eastern Christianity, the sacramental wine is usually red. Um, that's to, because they take a little bit more seriously, let's say, the, the symbolizing of wine into blood or the transubstantiation as it's called. Transubstantiation, by the way, is really complicated and every church seems to think of it slightly differently. Um, as we sort of insinuated, it is broadly the wine turning into Jesus's blood, the, the bread becoming his body. When you sort of look at how it came to be used historically, they used the word first transubstantiation to mean sort of becoming a substance of another type but they didn't mean it in specific reference to the way, say, Aristotle talks about substances. So they didn't literally, at least in the early days, some people do now, they didn't think that it had literally become another substance. They just didn't have a better word to say is now sort of the spirit of his blood, if you like. But um, 
lots of people have different takes on that, so I'm not going to go further down that that path. Um, <laughs> uh, so Eastern Orthodox Church sacramental wine used in the Divine Liturgy must usually be fermented pure red grape wine, often sweet, though that's not necessarily required. In the Greek Orthodox Church, they favour the use of Mavrodaphne or Nama. Mavrodaphne is a very dark wine. It's made from um, black wine grapes and it's it can refer either to a wine that's indigenous to the um, Achaia region, which is northern um, Peloponnese in Greece, or it can be a specific fortified wine, a sweet wine that was produced by a guy called Gustav Klaus around 1850. And that's a, that wine is um, a protected designation of origin. So in that version, Mavro Daphne is initially vinified in large vats that have been exposed to the sun. And then once the wine reaches maturity, the fermentation is stopped by adding um, a distillate prepared from previous vintages. And then the Mavrodaphne distillate and the wine, with still containing some of the um, residual sugar, is put in underground cellars to complete its maturation. And there they say it's educated by contact with older wine using cereal blending. So that's the Solera method that we've talked about before, both probably when we talked about um, port and barrels and so forth. Um, and then that's bottles and solds, um, you know, either directly as a sacramental wine or just as a dessert wine. Mavrodaphne means black laurel when it's translated, which may be because of the berries resemblance to those of laurel, but there are also stories that he had um, a lover or a fiance called Daphne who, who died, who had very dark eyes. Maybe it's one or the other, maybe it's both. Who knows, but we love a good, <laughs> uh, a good origin myth. And then the other one that the Greek Orthodox drink, Nama, um, is very similar to Mavrodaphne, but it's it's sweeter and it contains less alcohol. Um, that's another um, controlled appellation in Greece. The Russian Orthodox Church favours one called um, Kegor. I think it's Kegor, pronounced. It's another fortified dessert wine made from Cabernet Sauvignon, Saparavi and other grapes that were on the Black Sea coast of what was the Russian Empire. So now it's like Moldova and the Crimea. Um, and its name, Kagor, comes from Cahors in France. <laughs> so this gets confusing. Um, and that was the, the dominant grape variety in French Cahors region is actually Malbec, not Cabernet Sauvignon or Saparavi. Um, so... Akago originated as a sacramental wine in the Russian Orthodox liturgy because Peter the Great developed a taste for the Cahors wine and he started importing it in bulk. And the Russian clergy were so impressed with this very blood red colour um, that was reminiscent of Christ's blood for them that they adopted Cahors as their preferred wine for sacraments in 1733. So, slightly confused oh, history. <laughs> Isn't it? Isn't it? But it uh, goes to show what an influence Peter the Great had on the clergy, which I'm going to tell you a bit more about. But I just wanted to let you know that I am, in fact, drinking Cahors wine. <laughs> uh-huh. the, How is it? the actual French Malbec version, not the Cagor wine that you would get in the Russian church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes, it's very nice. It doesn't at all taste like blood. Mm. Do you feel holy? Always. 
So um, that, that's just the holes. So while we're in Russia mentioning Peter the Great, I thought I should tell you about um, his company, his, his jolly company. So when he was kind of young, a teenager, he had um, a group of lads, lads, lads around him who he called the Jolly Company and they would just basically go on pissed up adventures and annoy everyone and that evolved into what he called the all joking all drunken synod of fools and jesters Um, and it was basically a drunken ritualized parody of the church you will very much recognize it as sort of something like the Hellfire Club that we talked about in our Fire and Brimstone episode it was probably directly inspired by the Hellfire Club I think um, so they they were formed. They had a prince, pope, uh, a college of cardinals, bishops, priests, and deacons. And um, Peter the Great was, was a deacon, so he kind of appointed himself as the lowest level, but he was still in charge. <laughs> so he created lots of rituals and ceremonies and commandments for the group, which mostly involved heavy drinking, um, and they. Um, they ended up including basically everyone who had any power in the Tsar's government um, and even some of the real clergy as well. So he formed the Drunken Synod officially when he was 18 and let it continue all the way to the end of his life. So this wasn't quite as much of a fad as the Hellfire Club was. This was like he committed his life to taking the piss and annoying the church. Um, So this mock synod really angered a lot of the Orthodox Russians. He would take sort of a fake drunken Eucharist rather than actually take the church's blessings. Um, A lot of people in the Orthodox Church believed that Peter was the Antichrist. Um, But he, um, I I guess there was a sort of slight tactical move in that he stopped mocking Orthodox Russians and instead specifically went on to mimic the Roman Catholic Church. And then that didn't bother the Russians anymore. They were like, oh, that's fine. Like, you can mock the church as long as it's not our church. <laughs> so that's sort of how we uh, continue to get away with it. Oh, Russia. Um, in Western Christianity, white wine is um, is used probably more often for the practical purpose that it avoids stains on the altar cloths. <laughs> it's just a very practical reason. It's so like, British, we get, isn't it? We get, yeah, yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, it's like, oh no, our, our pretty lace is too fancy. We can't get red wine on it. Um, so there are there are wineries that exist throughout the world that are that purely exist to make sacramental wines. Um, and you know that's the same about other wines as well, not just Christian wines, like making kosher wine. And they're often run by you know religious brothers or, or priests or, or people who are dedicated to it. I found an example in Australia. Um, there's an Australian Jesuits winery that's the the oldest winery they have. It's in the Clare Valley. It's founded in 1851. It produces over 90,000 litres of wine annually, and that supplies all of the Australian region's sacramental wine needs. So that's if you wanted to know how much of that area of Australia drinks in terms of sacramental wine. It's 90,000 litres because it all comes from there. <laughs> that's a lot. Bloody hell. Mm, isn't it? So there's um, another thing I want to mention before I hand over to you is the issue of do you add water or not? Um, so in most liturgical rites like the Roman, the Byzantine, the Alexandrian, a small quantity of water um, is added to the wine when you're preparing the chalice. But there are others like 
in Armenia, for example, um, where it's consecrated without the previous mingling of water. Then in the Byzantine rite, some hot water, which is referred to as the zeon, which means boiling, is added to the consecrated wine shortly before the communion. Um, and this kind of process of adding water to the wine has been accorded different symbolic meanings. So some people say it's the mystery of Christ's human and divine natures combined. Some say it's his unity with the church um, and the flow of blood and water from Christ's side at his death. It probably comes from the Greeks because, as I said before, the Jewish tradition of winemaking was that you didn't mix anything with it. It was seen as sinful, in fact, to mix anything with wine. But Judea was conquered by Alexander the Great, who had the Greek tradition, as we found out in the, the episode about Dionysus, that they always mixed their wine with water. And it's from that period onwards that we do see in Jewish and then uh, Christian traditions later on that they do kind of accept the, the mixing of water. So I think it probably just comes from the Greeks more than mm -hmm. anything. Um, I'm going to stop there for a bit before I kind of finish off about um, how they drink it, how they drink it through, uh, through chalices. But have you got um, mm -hmm. any other sort of religious drinking experiences you, you want to offer me? And I use the term loosely. I have. I, um, I had lots of fun this week researching essentially the use of alcohol in different religious rituals. Mm -hmm. um, as you've already mentioned, some forbid it, uh, whereas a lot of them place it at the centre of their important ceremonies and rituals. Um, so yeah, I've got lots of fun little snippets. Um, you've obviously covered Christianity very well, so I won't talk about that too much. But I did find some examples of other alcohol, other types of alcohol being used in Christian rituals. Um, so in Mexico, um, tequila or mezcal is often left as an offering on Day of the Dead altars. Um, and also Eastern Orthodox, um, particularly Russia, they like to use vodka in their ceremonies. Um, so the vodka will be blessed by the priests and it's drunk at religious celebrations like Easter. Um, but they also pour it onto the graves of their loved ones. So vodka plays a big role there as well. Moving on to Judaism. Um, so wine is used quite elaborately in their rituals, especially in the Kiddush ceremony, which takes place during Shabbat, Jewish Sabbath. Um, so participants there will bless the kosher wine and then the challah. Mm. And before they drink, they will all do a toast, lachaim, to life. Um, during Passover, they step it up a little bit. Um, they will individually bless four cups of wine. And they also quietly pour a fifth ceremonial cup. That will be left untouched for the duration of the meal. Now, the reason why, it's reserved for the prophet Elijah. So he will arrive as a guest to herald the advent of the Messiah. So this cup of wine is symbolic of future redemption. As in, you can't drink it now, but it's within reach. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like if I was at that dinner table, I'd be like, hmm, it's with wine though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so you're gonna, yep. you, you're gonna drink that <laughs> yeah the wine's good also um if we're comparing breads the jewish challah bread is so much better 
than mm. I'm going to say even your flying saucers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, bread or flying saucers every day. <laughs> yeah, because that's actual bread, not just a wafer. <laughs> also, I quite like the job that Prophet Elijah's got. Just rocks up to the meal late, doesn't have to deal with all the small talk, and then just gets wine. <laughs> so. You say that like that's something you've never done. <laughs> You're like, that's oh, what an idea! I, like that's how I operate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm late. So pretend you're not familiar oh, with this open. method. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to Buddhism. So generally, they do abstain. Uh, they believe that alcohol clouds the consciousness, making it difficult to achieve enlightenment. However. There are so many, many Buddhists who now partake in what they call mindful drinking. Sure. Which is essentially a loophole that allows them to have booze, which I'm mm-hmm. here for. Uh, but they don't really like, you know, chin it and get wasted. They use it as a tool to clear the mind rather than confuse it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll, they'll use it as an aid for relaxing their ego and focusing further on their intentions rather than getting shit-faced. So they just have a few sips. Because when I was doing my research and I read that, I thought, oh, maybe I could be a Buddhist. And then I got to that bit and I was like, no, absolutely not. (laughs) Um, Sticking on Buddhism, another version, the Tibetan Buddhism. So one of their most ancient rituals is drinking from the Kapala. So this is a sacred sculpted cup made from the top of a human skull. Um, modern day ones are sometimes made of brass because some people get a bit icky about drinking out of human skulls can't think mm-hmm. why um, so the skulls are carved and adorned with lots of precious metals and jewels and then it's filled with booze, blood dough cakes, whatever, offerings they, these offerings are meant to appease the wrathful deities um, drinking from the skull is reserved for only the most experienced of llamas. That's a master spiritual leader, not an actual yeah, llama. Yeah, sure. <laughs> not, not the fluffy kind. <laughs> yeah, although I, I'd be there for that as well. If you're going to give a llama a drink out of a skull, I mean, how metal can you get? It's pretty metal. Um, <laughs> so yeah, drinking from the skull is supposedly supposed to transfer the knowledge and karma of that skull's former owner to the drinker, which mm-hmm. is why it's reserved for the the llamas. Got uh, a quick question. Next, yes, would, carry on. Would you allow me to drink out of your skull? Absolutely. Great, yeah. thanks. I just wanted to check in case you drop before I do, which, let's face it, I Good don't chance. know what knowledge you're going to get out of it, but... <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, I wouldn't want the karma. <laughs> it, more, it might be more like a curse. Good point. <laughs> Think about it, but the option's yeah. there. All right, cheers, thanks. <laughs> uh, next, we've got Taoism. Mm-hmm. Uh, this religion believe in the realm of hungry ghosts, which is a kind of purgatory for people who had violent or unhappy deaths. Um, or people who committed evils, or ancestors, um, people who had been neglected by their ans- uh, their living relatives. So not actually just ghosts that are a bit peckish. There's like a spiritual emptiness. Like like unfulfilled, as opposed yeah. to hungry, hungry hippos. 
Oh, I love that game. Yeah, it's great. Um, so, the Hungry Ghosts. Uh, during the seventh month of the Chinese calendar, the gates of the realm are opened and the Hungry Ghosts roam the earth seeking retribution. To combat them, Taoists hold a massive feast and they offer gifts to the ghosts to ward off the bad luck. So the gifts can range from food, livestock, cakes, rice wine, beer and lots of other alcohol. There's a lot of alcohol. Uh, This is all offered to the ghosts who are called to the table by a bell. So once they've rung the bell and the ghosts have surrounded them, they'll start throwing the offerings in the air in different directions in order to kind of distribute them back to the realm in different mm-hmm. ways. So to me, it sounds like just an excuse for a massive party, but... Yeah, it's a bit of a supernatural food fight. Mm. Yeah, although I wouldn't want to chuck my booze around. Or livestock, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> just throwing chickens around the room. Um, Hindus. Hindus tend to shy away from strictly forbidden booze. Instead, they ask people to consider how it will affect their personal religious goals and karmic actions. So similar to what you said, really. You know, it's not banned, Mm -hmm. but don't be a dick about it. Yeah. Um, Many monks take a vow of abstinence, but some tantric groups do use it in various sacred ways. Uh, They may offer to deities or they'll use it as a medicine for ritual healing. Uh, wine in particular or fermented juices are really common medicines uh, in the ancient Hindu healing system. Shinto. This was a new one on me. Shinto mm-hmm. is a Japanese religion and they love their booze and they love mental ceremonies. So I'm a big fan. Uh, their drink of choice is sake. Uh, they consider it to be the most sacred of drinks and refer to it as the liquor of the gods. Um the god of sake. I can't remember if we talked about the, the god of sake much mm. in our so- sake we, episode. We right? did, but go ahead, remind us. <laughs> I'm only going to say that he is also the god of rice and harvest. So drinking sake is associated with a bountiful and blessed harvest. Mm. Uh, so it's a standard offering for all deities at Shinto shrines. And it's an important part of the agricultural rites that they have, such as the Ji Chin Sai ground purification ritual, which is basically they just pour a ton of sake liberally onto construction sites. <laughs> sure. Uh, some of the more <laughs> I mean, int- you mean you might as well. There's a, you know, there's a lot of um, ceremonial libations in all sorts of cultures, isn't it? It's like we smash champagne over new ships and things was, like that. That's what I thought when I read this. I was like, that seems daft. Mm-hmm. And then I instantly thought, yeah, we do smash champagne on ships. Yeah, um, exactly. Some of the more intense rituals that I found out about Taoism, one of them includes um, a festival in Tonami. Where so can I just check, is that Taoism or Shinto? Sorry, Are you Shinto. back to Taoism or is it still Shinto? No, 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 I'm on Shinto. I've, I've, okay. I left the Taoists feeding their hungry ghosts. Yeah. Uh, no, the Shinto are feeding carp. They're feeding sake to carp, in fact. In order to exercise the waters of evil spirits. Um, Not a big kind of appreciation from animal rights groups on that festival. I'm not surprised to read. (laughs) Sure, good point. We're not not quite sure whether the carp um, consented to drinking. They might be Buddhist. (laughs) 
They might be. <laughs> Clouding their enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favourite Shinto festival, however, it's a winter festival where young men drink like a shitload of sake. They get wasted. And then they have to defend their Shinto shrine against men wielding torches. And the only thing they're allowed to use to defend the shrine is pine branches. So they nice. just get really drunk and have a massive fight. With pine branches. Mm, I, th- I feel like I've played that game. <laughs> I definitely haven't. <laughs> I've played, I played that game in a Devonshire field. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> in the uni days. <laughs> we used to, that's, that was like most of my drama degree is <laughs> doing that <laughs> just like running around fields with sticks hitting each other definitely yeah Shin, shinto is um, interesting i don't know how much you, you got to read about it but it's not it's not really religion Shinto. it's more but uh, it is interesting because of how every kind of element of nature has a spirit that should be respected um and so mm-hmm. it's kind of like it's going through a bit of a a revival even I think because people have realized that you don't necessarily have to believe in it as a reality but it's a useful tool to kind of think about how you should respect nature I like I, everything I read about it I liked other than feeding sake to fish yeah because if someone's going to drink like a fish it's going to be you <laughs> mm-hmm. More not an actual fish. fish yeah <laughs> Um, so we're going to move from Shinto to Shaman. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone who plays Skyrim, Diablo, World of Warcraft, will all be familiar with Shaman. So they... Are they they're the as... band who sang um, Ebenezer Good in the, in the 90s acid rave movement, right? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> God, you probably weren't even born. <laughs> I was just about... <laughs> <laughs> I know the song though. Carry on. It's a tune. Okay, good. Good. Um, but just for anybody who doesn't know the the band or the computer <laughs> games I mentioned, uh, shamans yeah. serve as intermediaries between the human and the spirit world. They claim to be capable of healing, divination, and manipulating the elements. Uh, they love their booths as well. During seances, they often use alcohol and hallucinogens to help them quickly reach a state of ecstasy that gives them superhuman capabilities such as extreme pain tolerance and strength. Mm-hmm. Um, one of their most booze-soaked, quite literally booze-soaked, uh, rituals is the enlivening of the drum. Uh, the shaman will pour booze on the skin and wood of the drum, a new drum, and that supposedly inspires the deer and the tree from which the material came from to reveal themselves and their life stories through the shaman. Wonderful. I've, yes. All I've got going through my head at the moment is, and this is very disrespectful, um, when I was starting out doing doing comedy, like performing comedy in pubs and stuff, the sort of first character I created for myself was called Brian Shaman. And um, he, was a, <laughs> he was a mystical expert from Birmingham. Um, and he practiced the sacred art of feck shite. And... Um, I used to do, I used to like do lots of live um, uh, tarot readings and stuff for the audience, for like these drunken people in the pubs. And it would always be about predicting their death. <laughs> Every single one was like, 
that I was in some way a benefit cheat and also I was predicting their death every every single time. <laughs> and I, in particular, I used to do this act that went really well where I used to pretend I was going to read someone's mind and I would get them up on stage to draw a picture on a piece of on, on a piece of paper on a pad and I'd be standing opposite them with my own pad and I'd say, all right, now I want you to just picture an image in your mind and draw it. It could be anything really simple like a house. It could be um, anything. It could be something you live in. Um, it could be like a square with a triangle on top. It could be literally anything like a house or whatever. And um, I would I'd kind of keep doing this and very obviously suggesting to them that they should be drawing a house. And mm -hmm. then when they turned it around to show me, I'd be like, oh, I drew a boat. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the best things about that was one of usually one of two things happen sometimes they would do something completely different and that's fine the joke still works but either they would do what i tell them and they would draw a house which made it funny when i didn't or the most the second most common thing that people draw when you ask them just to draw something is a boat so it was the likelihood I'd, I'd that they were going to draw one of those two things of course you'd have gone for a willy but you know if i got you up i'd know to draw a willy <laughs> Um, but yeah, it was it was just a good act because it always worked, but on different levels sometimes. Anyway, when you were talking about shame and all of that kind of past life of performing as this very offensive Birmingham's mystic, I was going through my head. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever do any food? Oh, 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 oh! I did. I did drink something as well. I always drank a can of skull. <laughs> I always. <laughs> I always had a can of skull with me. Drink. It's famous, famous Birmingham shame drink. Uh, yeah, I always had to drink a can of Skull. And um, that was the worst decision I made, actually, like in terms of the character creation, because I legit did have to go and buy a can of Skull from um, the off-license before every show. And it was not a pleasant thing to chug while you were on stage trying to deliver lols. No. Yeah. A couple Why of times I didn't have Skull and I did Special Brew instead. But I mean, you get the idea. Didn't they? <laughs> <Yep>. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I've got three left. Next one is voodoo. Mm -hmm. Voodoo. Voodoo. Um, so say, you do. What? Uh, a Haitian really, really. I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, a Haitian religion, and they put booze to good use, which is why you often see uh, voodoo imagery in booze branding, particularly rum. You see a lot mm -hmm. of voodoo symbol there uh, so rum in particular is given as an offering to saints and ancestors souls it's also consumed to better allow the iwa spirits to enter the body which fortified the drinker with the strength to overcome daily struggles not daily hmm? mm. have you had your daily excuse. rum <laughs> <laughs> so I am on topic. I'm drinking rum. <laughs> oh, I see. oh, right. Yeah, you planned mm. that. I see. Yes. <laughs> sure you did. Just to help me get through the day. <laughs> the struggles. Your daily struggles. The daily struggles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next is condomble. I've not heard of this one either. Condomble. So uh, this is practiced primarily by Afro-Brazilian people. And they present alcohol as an offering for their extremely picky gods. One of their gods, Exu. He's the dangerous messenger who travels between the human and the divine world. And he loves his Karsasha, which is a sugarcane spirit. Uh, it must be offered in a temple to him. 
if not, he will get very offended and he will lash out violently. Ooh. Mm. So he's a he's an angry drunk. An angry drunk, condomly. Last but certainly not least, we've got the pagans. Mm-hmm. They choose to express their faith by drinking lots and lots and lots of alcohol. Um, which is why a large group of pagans felt very oppressed when booze was banned at Stonehenge a few years ago Mm. Um, for the summer solstice a lot of people would often go down there and get rather merry Uh, but yeah they stopped people taking booze in lots of their ceremonies are filled with wine, ale, mead especially those held by cults that worship the gods of wine and harvest like Mm -hmm. our friend Dionysus. Bacchus Dionysus, yeah. Yes. That's when I stopped then, because I thought, well, I've come full circle, because I started reading about Dionysus and Wassailin, the pagans Mm. of Wassailin. So, yeah, that's uh, booze and religion for you, in a nutshell. Very good. I like the full Mm. range of cultural experiences that most of the cultures agree that having some is good, having too much is bad that it can put you it's very important for celebrations to like honor special times and that also sometimes the gods would like a bit themselves so don't forget to uh, pour your libations that's what i got Mm -hmm. from world religion then yeah don't take the piss and share yeah even more succinct well done (laughs) 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 we should write a holy text Um, right, shall we return to the Eucharist a little bit? Just because I want to tell you about a little bit more about the chalice. I actually think we should do an episode on its own about like drink special drinking vessels, but can't not tell you about the the chalice while we're here. Sure, we drinking vessels episode. No, so should we do one? No, we've done barrels. Maybe that's what you consider a drinking vessel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I thought we'd done a drinking vessels. Well, we've done measures. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I love how you have no idea what we've done. Um, so Roman Catholic <laughs> priests, I think this is quite nice, often receive chalices from their family when they get first ordained. So often the ones they're using are like their their first ordained present, if you like. Um, I mentioned that in the West, the habit is more for people drinking directly from the chalice, chinning it. So they get you know, they get offered it and then they drink themselves. For that reason, the chalices in, in Western tradition are usually tulip-shaped and narrow because that's much better for raising and drinking from. But in the, the Eastern Catholicism and Orthodoxy, they get the, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ at the same time. So they put the, the host into the chalice with the wine and then they put it on a spoon. And so for that reason, the chalices tend to have the kind of like larger rounded cups. Because if you imagine trying to get a spoon into a long one, it's just, it ain't as pretty. Um, <laughs> in the Russian Orthodox Church, they will often kiss the foot of the chalice as well after receiving the Holy Communion. And in other traditions, they kiss the cup. So the cup kind of aspect of it is very important. And the shape depends on how you're going to receive it. Um, only wine and water if you 
put that in yours and portion of the host are permitted to be placed in the chalice. It may not be used for any profane purpose. Morgan, looking at you. Um, I need no. I need them to be more specific than that. <laughs> no iron brew, no buckfast. <laughs> Specifically. Um, so in the in the Christian tradition, the, the Holy Chalice is meant to symbolise the vessel that Jesus used at the Last Supper to serve the wine. But actually, the New, the New Testament makes no mention of the cup as being anything particular of note, um, except within the context of it, it was there at the Last Supper. But it gives no significance to the object itself. That actually comes later. So we see it sort of by the 6th and 7th centuries that pilgrims to Jerusalem start to believe that the actual chalice was being venerated there at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, and then having within it the sponge which was presented to Jesus on Calvary. So this is sort of centuries later that people think for some reason the, um, the chalice itself is important. And how we still see that being manifested, other than, you know, it being symbolically used in the church are the muddled stories that we now get between the chalice at the Last Supper and the Holy Grail. So in the legends, um, Jesus used the cup at the Last Supper to institute the Mass, but other stories say that Joseph of Arimathea used the cup to collect and store the blood of Christ at the crucifixion. And that seems to have all been wrapped up with various stories over the centuries, so that the two kind of things have become interchangeable. Um, we see stories of the Grail written down before it becomes kind of known, because before it becomes associated with Jesus's chalice in Welsh mythology. So with you know around the Arthurian legends and all that kind of stuff, and um, uh, Percival and, and all those kinds of things. So there are different theories as to whether. The Holy Grail being a religious thing is just emerging. You started in Welsh myth and got merged with Christianity, whether it started in Christianity and then got flavours of Welsh mythology, or whether actually it goes back to sort of Greco-Roman ceremonial practices where they would have uh, drunk out of holy vessels as well. Um, or maybe it all just comes from Dan Brown. Um, <laughs> with his uh, <laughs> with his Da Vinci Code Sangreal nonsense. But yeah, so the the um, significance of the chalice, potentially it did just come out of Christian tradition or potentially it's all the fault of the Welsh. Thanks. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, at the moment, obviously, there are some corona issues <laughs> with taking the common <laughs> cup, as we have known in this country. Um, they should not be sharing the common cup, is the official advice. The presidant alone should be taking the wine, consuming all that has been consecrated, um, and other communicants should receive the bread only in the hand. So the church should do like a BYOB thing. (laughs) Yeah, bring bring your own, we'll bless it on the fly. Um, So (laughs) the, the church is saying, you know, the new practice still represents complete communion, um, encourages the, you know, the priest to sanitize their hands before giving the bread. They might have to both wear masks and remain distant, uh, according to whatever time we're talking about this happening in. Um, but it is interesting. There was a bit in there where it says that the presiding should consume all of the consecrated wine. And that's because they're not supposed to throw it away. 
So if you bless wine, it should be drunk. And that led me on to quite a few articles I read of Catholic priests who've been caught over the limit. And I have to say, I um, don't want to provoke any national stereotypes, but every single one of those articles was Irish. Um, and <laughs> they were talking about how if they're, if they're more rural and they have to drive to, you know, give last rites or whatever, you know, give communion out in the, out in the um, countryside and people can't come to the church then when they offer the wine to people and they only take a little sip, they have to finish it off. And by the time they've been to three or four houses, they're over the limit. Yeah. And they were sort of complaining about this being a thing, which, you know, could be real, could be an excuse. But um, what they can do is they can get special permission from the Catholic Church to use mustum instead, which is only partially fermented grape juice. So it's still pure, but it's not fully fermented. Um, so superior I, priests that have you know, conditions or whatever. Hmm. I was thinking the other way where they could go, you know, like people have the exemption. Um, oh, what do you call them? The lanyards, the exemption lanyards for not having to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. They could have like an exemption lanyard to essentially say, right. yeah, I'm drunk. <laughs> right. You thought the exemption was from the church to the police <laughs> to be like, it's all right, I'm brave. <laughs> no, no. These exemptions, um, that can be issued by the church, but they have to come with a medical certificate proving that you have a condition or you are alcoholic, and that's why you can't have more alcoholic wine. You can only have lightly alcoholic wine. So they, they still take it quite seriously. Um, and then that led me on to think about... Um, blood alcohol tests <laughs> because okay. partly because of them getting tested but also because you know there are like there are all those old jokes of when someone drinks um communion wine and they're like this is the blood of jesus how much was he drinking um and so i thought how much was he drinking so um i, I was looking at how blood alcohol tests work and there are three kind of main parts to it which i didn't know um first is the hematology report which is the full blood count, uh, MCV analysis, which is mean corpuscular volume, and that measures the volume of red blood cells to indicate um, your alcohol intake. So heavy and frequent drinking increases the size of those cells to outside of the normal range. So if you have an increased volume of red blood cells, it indicates that you've had excessive alcohol consumption. Then there's the biochemistry report, which is two different things. One is the liver function test, and the other is the carbohydrate deficient transferrin analysis. So the liver function test measures um, a bunch of different enzymes in the blood that are produced by the liver. So long-term alcohol intake causes damage and inflammation of the liver, which means you will then get abnormal results from the enzymes. So they look for particular markers like total protein, albumin, globulin, and if a marker is above or below the normal range, that indicates that it's not functioning correctly. And then the carbohydrate deficient transferrin analysis, um, again, transferrin is produced in the liver. So when a person is drinking alcohol at chronic levels, carbohydrates are removed from the transferrin molecule. And as a result, that means there can be a high percentage of transferrin with reduced amounts. And that will show you that the, um, they're abusing alcohol. The, that CDT analysis covers a period of about two weeks whereas um, an abnormal LFT result is caused by sustained excessive drinking. But in order to get the most accurate, um, which will be used if 
say for example, you know, you ever went to court for some reason and you needed a more kind of airtight legal definition of what's been going on, then they'll take a hair alcohol test and that covers up to a six month period. So as hair grows, alcohol markers like fatty acid, ethyl esters and ethyl glucuronide are absorbed and bound into the hair strands. So long-term excessive consumption um, results in elevated levels of those and um, ECG, for example, is formed in the liver and is only produced when alcohol has been consumed. So it's a really kind of like, it's a really good airtight test of whether you've had alcohol over a longer period. So ETG is deposited into the hair, usually from sweat, and a higher level indicates that more alcohol has been consumed. So I thought it was interesting because I thought blood alcohol test was just like one thing, like, you know, take mm, a blood test. But intense. just so you know, um, they're also <laughs> going to look at things like your hair um, and other stuff to, to look at how it's affected you over a longer period of time. I have a lot of hair, so I'm all right. <laughs> yeah. So the answer was, um, yeah, Jesus was obviously drunk all the time, hence why his blood tastes that way. And we should test his hair. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Can I talk about coffee? Oh, are you going to uh, try and sober us up after all that? Um, I can do, but I've still got some rum left, so no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's just that in the 1600s, uh, coffee was known as Satan's drink, and it was heavily frowned upon by Catholic Europe. So I thought I'd t- just chat about that a bit. Yeah, okay. Um, so... Although coffee was popular in Turkey in the 17th century, it is a drink that has a history of being outlawed. Um, so this is obviously talking about before coffee was, you know, exported and being widely consumed around Europe. So we're just mm-hmm. in Turkey for now. So Sultan Murad of the Ottoman Empire, he made it illegal to drink or buy coffee. Um and he was actually um, in favour of decapitation if anyone was found to be buying or drinking it. Well, that is often, harsh. Yeah, often they'd still have their lips on the rim of the coffee cup they were drinking from when they were decapitated. <laughs> sure. Yeah, sure. That's not that's not marketing <laughs> he, bullshit at all. <laughs> well, no, apparently he was hell-bent on uh, getting rid of coffee, so he'd um, disguise himself as a commoner and enter, enter these coffee houses, like secret coffee houses, um, and he'd have a sword hidden under his cloak, and he would just go absolutely cray cray if he caught anyone drinking coffee and just chop like their when, heads off. Like when Starbucks sends like a um, hidden, a secret customer in from head office to all the different branches just to see how you do. He's kind of like that, but really extreme version. Yeah, with less decapitation. Yeah. <laughs> well, more well, he had less decapitation. <laughs> <laughs> His successor was uh, kind of of the same vibe. <laughs> he didn't like coffee either. Uh, he'd punish people with a harsh beating the first time they were found to be drinking coffee. The second time, he was just like, uh, you're out, you've had your chance. So he would sew them into a bag and drop them in the river to drown. Okay. Um, I, can, I can see that. I was just thinking, like, when um, <laughs> when you come and stay at mine... A morning for you is usually a coffee and a harsh beating, just to get you going. <laughs> yeah, I'm still waiting for that bag to come out the cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not far from the Thames, mate. Next time it could happen. 
You never hear from me again, guys. You know where I am. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so why did they have such beef with coffee? Um, so one of their observers made an observation. <laughs> he said, when people drink alcohol, they get drunk and silly. But when people drink coffee, they remain alert and they plot against those in charge. So it was deemed a very dangerous mm-hmm. drink. I wouldn't disagree with that. Mm. No, I don't. Uh, But despite all the decapitation with lips on rims and bags in riverbeds, it still spread. It was a very popular drink and it soon started trading into Venice. So the next person to be triggered by coffee was Pope Clement VIII. So his advisors suggested that he just banned it straight away. Um, It was associated with Islam as far as they were concerned and it had a clear effect on people. They refer to it as a bitter invention of Satan. So what did the Pope do? Any guesses? Um, I mean, I'm obviously ban. I'm not sure he would have gone for decapitation. Maybe just like a little nipple twister. Nope. He chinned it. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> he was like, well, before I ban it, I'll have a taste. So, you know. Although he'd been told it's a bitter invention to say Satan and it has a clear effect on people. He's like, all Mm -hmm. right, give me a cup. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Um, And he loved it. He thought it was so tasty that it would be a shame to not not use it and not enjoy it. So uh, he went completely the other way, didn't ban it. He decided it was a good alternative to alcohol. And instead of renouncing it, he gave it his blessing. And from then on, coffee was super duper popular. The first European coffee house opened in Rome in 1645. And churches even used to have coffee hours, like a happy hour. And they just loved it. Meanwhile, turkey guys were getting thrown into rivers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, bad luck. Bad luck to them. So yeah, think about that. That was the problem. They should have just said to him... Look, I know you're angry about this, dude, but have you actually tried it? Like, maybe we're just not preparing it right. Maybe you want a macchiato. Is that is that the issue? Do you need more milk? Do you what? Have you Perhaps tried you pumpkin like spice latte? Yeah. Have Are you, you, you that girl? Have this gingerbread syrup because yeah, it's gonna blow your lips off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful. Um, if we weren't going to hell before, we are now. So um, our glasses have run dry, which means it is time to fill them from the tap and get Jesus round as soon as possible. Cheers, everybody! Cheers, Jesus! Or land or sea or you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home.